Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 31, 2 Kings chapters 20 and 21. In our day, in the modern Western culture and body politic, Human history and spirituality are considered as mutually exclusive subjects and realms. Thus, in the United States, we have this constant tension between the borderlines of church and state. However, in most of the Western world, the state long ago won out. And religion is seen as little more than a relic of a superstitious and a a primitive past. And in places where it's not quite that extreme yet, such as in America, the church and other religious institutions are still given a measure of validation, but only as separate and unconnected organizations apart from the various levels of civil government. Thus, the popular philosophy of the 21st century is that whatever represents the historical past, whatever might happen in the present and in the future is entirely in the hands of humanity and in fate. God in whatever form you believe he exists is primarily here for each person's own comfort, sense of inner peace and happiness. Nothing more. But in ancient times People believed that history and spirituality were not just connected, they were interwoven and inseparable. The gods directed all human activity. They often created the circumstances behind human activity. And so earthly human history was nothing more than the visible and tangible result of what the gods decided. And by way of example, I explained in our previous lesson that the alternative name for Assyria that we find used often in the Bible is Asher. And it's rather commonly said that Asher is just the same word but in a different language for Assyria. Rather it is that Asher is the name of Assyria's chief national god. And since one god or another was always considered as the actual founder of a nation, and since gods controlled human history, it was common to refer to a nation, sometimes by its national name, at other times by the name of its national god. And we find that scenario confronting us every few sentences during this point in our study of the book of Second Kings. Thus, when studying the Bible, we need to adjust our minds to the worldview of the Bible characters and writers and editors if we are to understand what they observed and experienced and what they meant by what they recorded for us. One of the problems that a modern Christian faces is that we subconsciously read the Bible through the lens of our modern worldview. As an unintended consequence, 
this modern worldview can just fill us with spiritual doubts. And what I mean by that is that under some circumstances we might question the tenets of our faith. Or we might wonder if God is actually living and present in this world in or in our lives or has become popular since the Enlightenment period, does God exist at all? Or as a friend of mine liked to say, what is it that we actually believe we believe? Now that sort of a modern skeptical mindset was nowhere present in biblical times among any known culture. The only question for them was which god or gods they ought to give their allegiance to. What they might do to gain favor with those chosen gods. The spiritual and the earthly couldn't be separated. Thus when we ended last time, we found King Hezekiah of Judah with a terminal illness of some sort and the prophet Isaiah telling him to get his affairs in order because he was surely going to die. And Hezekiah's first thought was, what had he done to displease his God, Jehovah, such that his normal lifespan was being cut short? So he prayed to the Lord to consider his case. The Lord did. And through his prophet Isaiah, he informed Judah's king he would live and not die. That is, God would intervene. He would supernaturally heal the king from his otherwise fatal disease. And to provide assurance to Hezekiah that his healing would happen quickly and it would not be just temporary. The Lord offered to give Melech Hizkiah, King Hezekiah, a miraculous sign that involved a sundial. And this sign came about as promised. Hezekiah was healed and he continued to rule Judah. This is where we left off. And so let's reread from, from there to the end of the chapter. Now this is important stuff because it's going to have much to do with Judah's eventual exile to Babylon. Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 12 through the end. That's starting on page 427 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Brodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babel, heard that Hiskiah had been ill. So he sent a letter and a gift to him. Now Hezekiah listened to the messengers and showed them the building where he kept his treasures, including the silver and gold and precious oils, and also the building where he kept his armor. Everything in his treasury. There was nothing in his palace or in his entire domain that Hiskiah did not show them. Then Yeshayahu, Isaiah, the prophet came to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did these men say and where did they come from? And Hezekiah answered, They came from a distant country, Babel. And Isaiah asked, What have they seen in your palace? They've seen everything in my palace, said Hezekiah. There isn't a thing among my treasures I haven't shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Then hear what Adonai says. 
The day will come when everything in your palace, along with everything your ancestors stored up until today, will be carried off to Babel. Nothing will be left, says Adonai. They will carry off some of your descendants, your own offspring, and they will be made eunuchs serving in the palace of the king of Babel. Hezekiah said to Yeshiao, The word of Adonai which you have just told me is good. He thought, Isn't it though? If peace and truth continue at least through my lifetime. Other activities of Hezekiah, his power, and how he built the pool and aqueduct to bring water into the city are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Then Hezekiah slept with his ancestors and Manasseh his son took his place as king. Seemingly out of the blue, Hezekiah gets a state visit from the king of Babylon, a fellow named Baradak Baladan. Now you might have a Bible that makes this person's name to be Merodach Baladan. This is the same person. The confusion comes in that in the oldest Hebrew texts, the first letter of this man's name is a bet. And in the Greek Septuagint, this has been changed to a mu. And thus, when further translating from Greek to English, we get an M for Meridach instead of a B for Baradach. So which is correct? Almost for sure it's Meridach. Because we find that name used in that form in the Hebrew Bible to record the same account in the story of Isaiah 39. Further, ancient Chaldean annals record his name using an M as Marduk Apla Idina. So, who was Merodach? Why did he venture all the way from Babylon to visit King Hezekiah? Well, as to the why he came, there's been a lot of speculation that it had to do with the sign of the sundial that God gave to his Kiel. And the thought is that it was well known that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were astute astronomers and astrology was the focus of their religion. Thus, when he heard about the shadow of Hezekiah's sundial retreating for ten units instead of advancing as normal, he came to inquire about it. However, that reasoning belies the plain reading of the scriptures, which say that Merodach came when he heard about Hezekiah's illness and his recovery. But what about that illness in recovery would intrigue the king of Babylon? The reality is the answer lies mostly within the political situation of Merodach and his nation. Josephus says that Merodach came to invite Hezekiah to become his ally and his friend. And this certainly has the ring of truth to it. Since Merodach was constantly at war with powerful Assyria, and Judah was also constantly under pressure from this growing empire, both kings needed allies. Babylon was an off-and-on vassal to Assyria, and Judah had been severely damaged by Assyria's attempted conquest of the Holy Land. But upon the death of the Assyrian king Shalmaneser, in 722 BC, there was a time of political instability in Assyria. And Merodach used that time to elevate himself to Babylon's throne. 
with the help of the neighboring kingdom of Elam, he held on to it until 710 BC. But in 710 BC, the latest king of Assyria, Sargon, attacked Babylon in order to recover it. Merodach fled. Sargon named himself as Babel's king. About five years later, Sargon was killed on the battlefield. And so another period of Assyrian instability occurred. This gave Merodach the opportunity to return from his exile, regain the throne, but for something less than one year. Sennacherib became a serious king. And immediately he came after Babylon and Merodach, and that was the end of Merodach. So during which of his terms on Babylon's throne did Merodach come to Judah to visit? He's Kiao. Well, since he had his hands full with Assyria attacking him, it's unlikely he could have paid a state visit to Judah during his second term. So it was no doubt during his first term in office that we're reading about here in 2 Kings 20. Now apparently, King Hezekiah was flattered by this king's visit. He wasted no time in showing King Merodach the wealth and armaments of Judah, something which he obviously took great pride in. The rabbis point out that in Isaiah 39, the parallel account of Merodach's visit, that it says this in Isaiah 39.2, Hiskiah was pleased with the gifts and showed the messengers all of the building where he kept his treasures. The Hebrew word that's usually translated as pleased or glad is samach. And the rabbis say that the English word rejoice better expresses the meaning. See, the idea is that Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, was quite open and receptive to the idea of an alliance with these heathen Babylonians. And so he was ecstatic that the Babylonian king came bearing gifts as a sign of wanting a political relationship of equals. Something that the Lord was dead set against. Now while Israel was always to try for peace with its neighbors, they were never to have a formal alliance with a foreign nation. And they were to seek whatever deliverance they needed from God. This principle is stated emphatically and in a number of places in the Bible, including Exodus 23 and 34, Deuteronomy 7, Judges 2. In reality, Hezekiah was open to doing exactly what his father, King Ahaz, had done when he approached the Assyrians, wanting their friendship. He was willing to give up some of Judah's sovereignty to Assyria if they could be allies. Only for Hezekiah, it was with Babylon that he sought favor and partnership. And it is true that this would not be a vassal arrangement like Ahaz had with Assyria, but rather a relationship of friends that had a mutual interest. Hezekiah was anxious to show off his, his royal might and all of his wealth to the Babylonian king. It was quite inflating to the Judahite pride that these ambassadors would come from such a well-known and far-off place as Babylon to seek an audience with Judah's king. It seems that Melech Hezekiah had not only not learned his lesson from his father's ill-advised attachment of God's kingdom to heathen Assyria, 
but he also had forgotten about his quite recent God-granted recovery from his terminal illness. And this is likely what is meant by what we read in yet another parallel account of this misadventure in 2 Chronicles 32. In 2 Chronicles 32, 25-26, it says this, However, Hiskiah did not respond commensurately with the benefit done for him because he'd grown proud. Thus he brought anger on himself and on Judah and on Jerusalem as well. But Hiskiah then humbled himself for his pride, both he and the people living in Jerusalem, so that Adonai's anger did not strike them during Hiskiah's lifetime. In other words, after his miraculous recovery, instead of growing humble, Hezekiah grew proud for a time. It cost him dearly. Rather than being grateful to the God of Israel, there was an extended period in which he saw himself as especially worthy, apparently deserving of the divine favor, full of merit and wisdom. Listen to the writer of Second Chronicles describe what Hezekiah had become, how God reacted to it all. In 2 Chronicles 32, 27-31, it says this, Hezekiah had vast riches, great honor. He provided himself with storage places for silver and gold and precious stones and spices and shields, all kinds of valuable articles. Also storehouses for the harvest of grain and wine and olive oil, stalls for all kinds of livestock, pens for the flocks. He provided cities for himself. He purchased flocks and herds in abundance, for God had made him extremely wealthy. It was this same Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and diverted the water straight down on the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah succeeded in all that he did. However, <clears throat> in the matter of the ambassadors from the princes of Babel, who sent to him to learn of the marvel that had taken place in the land, God left him by himself in order to test him so that he might know everything that was in his heart. See, Hezekiah, whom God had earlier pronounced, was almost on par with King David in his righteousness, had a reaction to his being divinely healed that at once surprises us and yet seems so familiar. Rather than seeing his own mortality as being fragile and his fate lying purely in God's hands, he became strong in himself. He was feeling invincible, quickly turning from a rather shallow gratitude to a much deeper-seated arrogance and pride. He mistook God's love and mercy for him as a license to live his life as he pleased. He thought that since God loved him, since God was with him, that as Judah's king, he was now the exception to the rule. He could take great liberties with God's laws and commandments. God would simply approve or he'd just look the other way. Doesn't that pretty well describe the modern Christian viewpoint 
of salvation in Christ. That is to say that since we're redeemed by grace and loved by God, that Jesus has relieved us of our obligations to the Father. We are the chosen exceptions to the divine rule. We are the only people on the planet, or even among the angels, who have no duty to be obedient to God's laws and commandments. When we see this attitude surface in Hezekiah, and then we factor in all that God did for him, delivering him from death, and yet his reaction was to consider himself as free from God's commandments, free to live his life according to his own perspective and advantage, well then we shake our heads in mock amusement and disbelief at him. But when we're confronted with it in ourselves, are we any different? Or do we go on deceiving ourselves into thinking that liberty in Christ means freedom from God? God's unchangeableness could only lead to Isaiah's denouncement and prophetic judgment against Hezekiah. And it is so like God that the very thing that Hezekiah sought as his deliverance from danger and as his ticket to prosperity of friendship and an alliance with Babylon would in time become Israel's doom and their extended misery. 2 Kings 20, 16-18 said, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear what Adonai says, The day will come when everything in your palace, along with everything your ancestors stored up until today, is going to be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Adonai. They'll carry off some of your descendants, your own offspring. They'll be made eunuchs serving in the palace of the king of Babel. See, a two-part judgment was issued. First, in a like-for-like manner, everything that Hezekiah holds dear and so boastfully showed off to the emissaries from Babylon as symbols of his personal greatness would in time be turned over to other representatives of this same kingdom. But even more, some of Hezekiah's descendants will wind up serving the king of Babel. In the generation of the Babylonian exile, Hebrews of royal lineage like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, along with a host of other bright and talented young people, would be forced into the service of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Oh, what a lesson this is. Our Christian and our messianic arrogance, our blind acceptance of age-old religious doctrines that excuse us from any responsibility, any accountability towards God and makes all relationship obligations incumbent only upon Him. This isn't going to necessarily bite us in our lifetimes. But it will inevitably lead to bad effects upon future generations. But what will our attitude be about that? Well, Hezekiah's is stated in verse 19 when he rhetorically thinks to himself that despite all these bad things 
that Isaiah says are going to happen to his people and to his descendants, at least it won't happen during his lifetime. So that's a good thing. What great news! He won't have to be around to see what his sin and his foolishness has wrought or personally experience the coming catastrophe. Rather, there will be shalom while he's still living. Others will have to deal with it in later times. The truth is that the coming evil wrought especially by the Antichrist and then that worldwide conflagration that happens when Yeshua returns is, we hope, not during our lifetimes. I guarantee you that if we really believed it could all happen tomorrow, we wouldn't be asking for it today. We regularly sing about the glorious battle of Armageddon. We fervently pray for the Lord to return and reign, but in secret, we hope for peace and prosperity while we're still living. So what we're really asking is for all these divinely ordered cataclysmic things to happen to our children and our children's children, just not to us. The truth is that so much of what will happen is at least partially on account of us and our generation. Evil will advance because we have ceased to fight against it. Faithlessness will increase because we've not been faithful. Rather than oppose evil, we've silently compromised with it. Rather than agree with God about what is forever right and wrong and live it out, we regularly agree with the world. We rationalize it away. That God's laws and commands are somehow not applicable to us. Or we claim that this was only for past times, it was for another people. This is what Hezekiah did. And too many of us have fallen to that same temptation. This chapter ends with Hezekiah's death after reigning for 29 years and now chapter 1 is going to be about the reign of his son, Manasseh. So open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. Page 428 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began his reign. He ruled for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the disgusting practices of the nations whom Adonai had expelled ahead of the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal. He made an Asherah, as had Ahav, king of Israel. And he worshipped all the army of heaven and he served them. He erected altars in the house of Adonai about which Adonai had said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. He erected altars for all the army of heaven in the two courtyards of the house of Adonai. He made his son pass through the fire as a sacrifice. He practiced, practiced soothsaying, divination. He appointed mediums and persons who used spirit guides. 
He did much that was evil from Adonai's perspective, thus provoking him to anger. He set the carved image for the Asherah he had made in the house concerning which Adonai had told David and Shlomo his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Also I will not have the feet of Israel wander any longer out of the land which I gave their ancestors, if only they will heed to obey every order I have given them and live in accordance with all the Torah that my servant Moses ordered them to obey. But they did not take heed. And Manasseh misled them into doing things even worse than the nations Adonai had destroyed ahead of the people of Israel. Adonai spoke this message through his servants the prophets. Because Manasseh king of Judah had done these disgusting things, because he has done things more wicked than anything the Amorites who were here before him did, also because with his idols he made Judah sin, therefore here is what Adonai the God of Israel says, I am going to bring such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of all who hear of it will tingle. I will measure Jerusalem with the same measuring cord that I used over Samaria. The same plumb line as for the house of Achav. I will scour Jerusalem clean, just as one scours a plate, scouring it and then turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my heritage, delivering them into the power of their enemies. They will become prey and plunder for all their enemies." Because they have done what is evil from my perspective. They provoked me to anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt to this very day. Moreover, Manasseh said so much innocent blood that he flooded Jerusalem from one end to the other. This in addition to his sin through which he caused Judah to sin by doing what is evil from Adonai's perspective. Other activities of Manasseh, all of his accomplishments and the sin he committed are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Then Manasseh slept with his ancestors and was buried in the garden of his own house, the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon, his son, took his place as king. Ammon was 22 years old when he began his reign. He ruled for two years in Yerushalayim. His mother's name was Meshulamet, the daughter of Harutz from Yotvah. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, as had Manasseh, his father. He followed entirely the manner of life of his father, serving the idols that his father served, worshipping them. He abandoned Adonai, the god of his ancestors. He did not live in Adonai's way. Ammon's servants conspired against him and put the king to death in his own palace. But the people of the land put to death all those who had been part of the conspiracy against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made Yoshiao, Josiah, his son, king in place of him. Other activities of Ammon and all that he accomplished are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Ammon was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Yoshiao, Josiah, took his place as king. <clears throat> now we're told that Manasseh was only 12 years old when he became king. However, there is little doubt that when he was first anointed, his was a co-regency with his father Hezekiah. Manasseh ruled over Judah from 697 to 642 BC. However, Hezekiah died in 687 BC. So, what we see is that Hezekiah and Manasseh 
ruled together for about a decade. This means that Manasseh only began to rule on his own when he was about 22 years old. Now some quick math says that since Hezekiah was 25 years old when he assumed the throne and he ruled for 29 years, he was 54 years old when he died. Thus if Manasseh was anointed king 10 years before his father's death, then King Hezekiah waited until he was 32 years old to produce an heir. Now, while there are strong, while there's strong implications in Second Kings that indeed King Hezekiah was derelict in his duty to produce children, so that David's dynasty could continue, it is highly unlikely that he fathered no children at all until Manasseh. That would have been so unusual that it seems that something would have been said about it. Either there were a bunch of daughters produced and no son for an heir, or perhaps the first of his sons died and Manasseh was the oldest of what remained. We just don't know, because the issue is never addressed in the scriptures. And it seems to be the case regularly among the kings, Manasseh was the polar opposite of his father. Just as his father Hezekiah was the polar opposite of his father Ahaz. So in a strange way, Manasseh was just like his grandfather. Ahaz. Manasseh was perhaps the most evil king to rule Judah up to this point, or at best, the equal of Ahaz. And ironically, he ruled longer than any other king of Judah. He ruled for 55 years. The result was a steep decline in the spiritual standing of Judah before the Lord. Manasseh led the remnant of God's people to do the very abominations that caused the Lord to eject the Canaanites from their land and then turn it over to Israel. Not one other Hebrew king from either Judah or Israel is described in the Holy Scriptures as being like the kings of the nations, of the Gentiles. It's the strongest indictment ever leveled at a Hebrew king. And starting in verse 3, we get a condensed list of some of the terrible things that Manasseh did. All of the Bamot, the high places that Hezekiah destroyed, Manasseh rebuilt. Most of these Bamot, by the way, were not for worshipping false gods, but rather for private sacrifice and worship of Jehovah. But this violated God's commandment that there was to be only one place for such ritual activity the temple in Jerusalem. Next he reintroduced Baal worship to Judah. He made an Asherah, which was the symbol of the goddess Ashtoreth. He instituted worship of the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. This was new for Judah, although it was rather common for many of the Middle Eastern cultures. But Manasseh had no bounds to his wickedness. Next, he built pagan altars meant to worship pagan gods, and he placed them in the temple grounds. He even adopted the practice of child sacrifice, leading the way by making his own son a burnt offering to Molech. He practiced astrology and divination. He called upon the spirits of the dead, and he did it profusely with the intent of angering Jehovah. Now, our complete Jewish Bible says that the result of Manasseh's actions made God angry. But the rabbis assure us such is not the meaning 
Rather, Manasseh's intention was like Nimrod's. He meant to stand before the Lord and defy Him and shake His fist at Him, just daring God to do something about it. Why would He do this? No doubt He'd become spiritually insane. But also because He had lost all respect for the Hebrew religion as practiced in Judah when He was growing up. And when we lose respect for the institution that claims to be the keepers of the faith, often we lose respect for the God of that faith. A question we have to ask ourselves is why was Manasseh so easily, so quickly able to undo all that his father had reformed? The answer, sadly, is that the reforms instituted by Hezekiah, although perfectly heartfelt by the king were shallow. They were tenuous on a national level. The veneer of holiness that Hezekiah applied all over Judah and Jerusalem only covered over the ugly perversion that lay just under its surface. The reality of holiness was nowhere present. Here's another of those lessons that I feel like I'm bludgeoning you with today and I really don't want to. But as your pastor and your teacher I have little choice but to present it to you and the rest is between you and God. Tearing down idols, sprucing up the temple until it gleams, making it a law that people had to abandon their personal high places and do all their sacrificing at the altar of burnt offering, the leader showing up, at every ritual ceremony and demanding the people do some or even most of what the Torah law prescribes, that's all useless and worthless if it's not backed up with contrite hearts, willing spirits, and souls hungry for God. It means nothing. For decade after decade, Judah had been subjected to evil kings, corrupt government, many willing accomplices in the priesthood. The moral and the spiritual fiber of Judah had been severely eroded. What passed for teaching the Torah was some strange mix of cultural traditions with pagan customs and then some Jewish ritual. Now what I just told you has been fairly recently archaeologically verified. Out in the Judean desert wilderness, some 55 miles northwest of the modern Jewish town of Elat, has been found some artifacts with ancient Hebrew inscriptions on them that chill the blood. These religious sites that incorporated most of the Jewish icons of Manasseh's era and are thought to be pretty standard fare for the time frame that we're studying right now, demonstrate just how far astray the accepted religion of the Hebrews had ventured. Some written blessings were discovered on those artifacts that said this, I bless you by Jehovah of Samaria and his Asherah. Another said, I bless you by Jehovah of Taman and his Asherah. Now, lest you not get the gist of this, 
What this is saying is that some within the Hebrew religion of Judah at that time had adopted the pagan Asherah that was considered as symbolic of the wife or consort of Baal and assigned her to Jehovah God of Israel. These Judahites essentially took a pagan goddess and all of her symbolism, Hebrewized her, and adopted her as part of the modern Hebrew religion because it fit better with the then current cultural beliefs and norms as practiced during Manisha's era. Now no doubt they felt quite good about themselves otherwise they wouldn't have done it. And if I can speculate a little bit probably they wouldn't have taken kindly to being told they had no heavenly authority to do such a thing that God wouldn't have been pleased with them for that. In fact, the prophets, just before Manasseh's reign and just after, did condemn the Judahites for the wrongness of their worship practices done in the name of Jehovah God of Israel. Most of them didn't survive the anger and the retribution of the people and the religious authorities. But how did the population of Judah get to such a deluded place so quickly? after Hezekiah's time on the throne. Well, what seemed in Hezekiah's day to be good and faithful, obedient, was only really so when compared to how it had been a few years earlier during the reigns of the especially wicked kings like Ahaz. But from a godly perspective, what passed for holiness among the ecclesia, among the congregation of God, was mostly just an outer form of piousness that seemed right to them. Thus when Hezekiah died and Manasseh was made king, the people easily fell back into the old ways, even worse. And that was because over the decades these ways had become deeply entrenched in their society. They were reflected in their traditions. They were accepted as normal. The people desired them that for many years they generally obeyed King Hezekiah, to some degree at least, and practiced their religion a little closer to what the Torah mandates, was not due to some newly found inner righteousness. For most it was more a matter of peer pressure. It was all about political correctness. And that Hezekiah had limited their choices. But with King Manasseh, the people were essentially liberated to do what they inwardly desired all along. And so these many abominable practices that are listed for us just burst forth almost overnight. It is Hebrew tradition and there is every reason not to discount it that it was King Manasseh who killed the prophet Isaiah who no doubt regularly confronted the king and his kingdom with about all their wickedness and about all their pretend righteousness. For one thing, immediately upon Hezekiah's death, we hear no more of Isaiah. For another, there is no prophet listed in the scriptures during most of the 55-year time period that Manasseh reigned. So while it's not certain, if there was a prophet 
during Manasseh's time. It was probably Nahum, and it was more in the latter years of Manasseh's reign. Thus, Manasseh had no spiritual guidance from the Lord because there was no prophet to deliver Jehovah's oracle to him. And this was because Manasseh didn't want it. And the people suffered from it, greatly suffered from it. Even though they thought that they were in one of the greatest periods of, of religious emancipation in the history of Israel. We're going to continue with this chapter next time.